This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hidden Histories. So today I spoke to Emily Brand. Emily is an author, historian, and genealogist specializing in the 18th century, especially the trials and tribulations of romantic relationships in England. Her most recent book, The Fall of the House of Byron, Scandal and Seduction in Georgian England, is a real page turner. It's been selected as the BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week and described as a ravishing family saga. She talks to me all about Lord Byron and his scandalous family that came before him. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, Emily Brand. Welcome to Hidden Histories. Oh, thank you. And congratulations on the publication of your fantastic new book. Thanks so much. It's, uh, it's an odd time, but um, staying positive. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And actually, hopefully, people actually have more time to read it. And so... Um, so they can fill their fill their lockdown with um, mm. salacious rumour gossip and um, stories about Byron. There's plenty of that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was just saying on, on the phone to you just now, um, I don't really know anything about Lord Byron. And actually, it's one of those names you think, gosh, I must know so much. It, it's just sort of comes, I suppose it's like osmosis. It sort of flows into the womb, doesn't mm. it? And... But actually, thinking about it, I know very, very little. So this is not just about Byron himself. This is about three generations of Byron family. Is that right? Yes, just thought I might as well make it difficult for myself and just have a whole family <laughs> saga going on, basically. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's not... Um, the poet is sort of ever-present throughout the book. He, he sort of bookends it, really. We begin with him and we end with him. But the main bulk of the story is really discovering how he came to be in that situation, why he inherited his title um, when he was just 10, because it wasn't uh, um, a clear line to him. Um, and and it's it's all the context of the background um, going through the 18th century and what the Byrons were up to during that time um, and charting really their sort of fall, if you like, from the beginning of the century to the end of the century and then ending. It's a, it's a prequel, basically. It's a pre- prequel to the poet and sort of exploring slightly how he was impacted as well and influenced by by those ancestors who who are generally pretty much forgotten nowadays so I think it does shine a bit of a light on the, on the poet's mentality as well. It's, it's an absolutely brilliant brilliant subject and you're right I mean it surely it must be the context of his upbringing and his life and his family that influenced his character that people know so well. Okay, so who, starting from the beginning, who were the Byrons? 
So, I mean, everyone obviously will think of the poet. Um, so this sort of this Regency era, rake and poet and libertine, if you like. Um, what my book does, as I've said, it sort of begins and ends with him, but, but we sort of shift backwards to his grandparents' generation, really, which are um, kicking off really at the beginning of the 18th century. But obviously they've been around, the family, the Byrons themselves have been around in England for I think it's a good 750 years before the poet. You know, they've been, they've come over with William the Conqueror, they've established themselves gradually sort of wheedling into the favour of various monarchs and being elevated eventually to the peerage in the 17th century. So it's a sort of a gradual upward move for them um, until the 18th century when it, they all get a bit entitled and um, showy-offy and it doesn't go particularly well for them, um, which is how it ends with the poet inheriting Newstead Abbey, which is the family seat in Nottinghamshire, but by that time it's a virtual ruin because the, the fortune's been lost and the upkeep can't be afforded anymore. So yeah, they've been around for a long time and, and it sort of all goes wrong in the 18th century, I would say. Okay, so they became peers in the 17th century. Do you think that that went hand in hand with the restoration and the salacious court of Charles II and that rise of the rake, so to speak? Well, they, they initially were sort of being rewarded for their loyalty during the Civil War, um, one particular, the, the first Sir John, the first Baron Byron. And then obviously they sort of fall off the radar during the um, Cromwellian era, but then certainly in the Restoration they sort of come back with a vengeance and they definitely embrace this Restoration enthusiasm for pleasure and all this. And there's um, there's a lovely quote, and I'm probably going to butcher it. Um, in the 1670s, the then the future third Lord is sort of having a bit of a poetry competition with one of his friends, and his friend really flatters him in a verse. It's something like. Is it not enough the Byrons all excel as much in loving as in fighting well? So at the end, sort of towards the mid to the end of the 17th century, there's also this apparent slightly jocular reputation for being awesome in bed and awesome on the battlefield as well. So I really loved finding that one. But I think they probably were sort of coming into their own in that era, definitely. Okay, so the book begins in the 18th century with the fifth Baron yeah. Byron. Um, who was he and what was his position within society? So the fifth Baron is the poet's grandfather's brother. In the book, there is a family tree, so it will be easier to uh, follow that. Um, so the poet's great uncle, and he's born in 1722, and he becomes the fifth Lord in 1736, so he's about 1314 and he sort of comes into this great fortune you know it's not it's not wild wealth but it's very steady very stable he's got a beautiful house that the you know society is in huge admiration of New Abbey um, for its art collection and for its sort of amazing aesthetic as well and it's him really who fritters everything away I think possibly coming into it too young and being basically allowed to do what he wanted from such a young age isn't going to do anyone any good. He seems to have been basically just a very swaggering, entitled sort of a chap, falling into very bad company as a young man, um, and then not getting everything on a on a silver platter in sort of military terms. He sort of keeps trying to go for shots at glory in the Navy and then in the Army, but ends up scuttling off home before being able to achieve anything. And People, I think, made a bit of fun of him and this eventually turned him into a bit of an embittered 
dreadful sort of man. So basically he goes through his life sort of on the back foot really, sort of looking spitefully at people. And, and the event that he's most famous for comes in his 40s, it's in 1765. And he's basically at a Nottinghamshire club meeting in London. There's a lot of claret flowing and sort of genial arguments going on about who's got the best best estate and who can hunt best and all this. And he ends up basically getting into a very petty dispute with someone that he's known all his life and they've been constantly falling in and out of arguments and he ends up stabbing him and killing him. So when this comes out the next morning, sort of the papers are full of it, the society gossip is full of it and he ends up being dragged basically to the Tower of London um, and being subjected to this trial for murder, which is his most notorious moment for sure. Oh, wow. So... Byron, as in the poet Byron, his ancestor was actually tried for murder. Yes. What was the outcome of that? Was he imprisoned? He was imprisoned in the Tower. But Well, his first reaction was to run off to France, which I think didn't do him any good um, in sort of the public eye. But then he, a couple of weeks later, comes back. He ends up being put in the Tower of London um, for a, a couple of months. Fortunately for him, his uncle was the constable of the tower, so everything was made extremely comfortable for him. I don't think he had too much of a problem with being there anyway. It's handy. Um, No, exactly. Um, But yes, basically he ends up um, in the middle of April 1765 being tried for murder at the House of Lords. Um, It goes, it doesn't go on for as long as everyone expects, um, but it's absolutely rammed with the sort of great and good of society. Some royals show up, some People come over from France to see what's going on because obviously if he gets found guilty, he'd be hanged. Um, mm. But fortunately for him, I think everybody except two get him charged for manslaughter rather than murder. And then the other two completely acquit him of everything. So he basically just pays a bit of a fine and then jumps in his sedan chair and goes home <laughs> and then goes on holiday. So, so it all works out really fine for him. In the end, um, he just gets a bit of notoriety under his belt as well. Okay, so he was so he was tried for murder and acquitted. What happened to him afterwards, and and who who followed him? Who then um, took the Byron name forward? So yes, it's it's an odd one actually because um, William, who I've just been speaking about as the fifth Lord, he goes on forever. Obviously, the awful ones outlive everybody. So it's so he outlives um, his both of his sons and his grandson um, and his brother, who is the poet's grandfather. And um, and that's uh, John Byron, who's known to history as Foulweather Jack. And he outlives Foulweather Jack's son, who's known as Mad Jack. Um, so it, basically the title goes from this embittered old killer, <laughs> essentially. I don't want to call him a murderer, but he did kill someone, um, straight down to this 10-year-old great nephew who he'd never met and had no wish to get to know either so in terms of the title it goes straight from William to the future poet but the book traces really it's it's the story of this William the fifth baron and his younger brother Fowweather Jack who's the poet's grandfather and their elder sister Isabella and all three of them um, sort of go through life with their various scandals and adventures and uh, terrible deeds that they've done so it really follows the three of them from birth till death 
And so, okay, so let's talk about Foul Weather Jack. Where does that name come from? Well, one thing that I was really keen to do um, in researching this book is to try and uncover, if possible, where all these sort of amazing myths about this family come from. Because when we read biographies of the poet, the first few pages tend to be a really condensed, myth-laden version of these people. Obviously, they're setting the background for the poet's um, family history and childhood and all of that. And it's full full of all these amazing names. So William is known as the Wicked Lord Byron, John is known as Foulweather Jack, and then the poet's father is known as Mad Jack. And the only one of those nicknames that I was able to actually find in their own lifetime was Foulweather Jack. And I was amazed and delighted to be able to do that because I was just (laughs) assuming it was all sort of posthumous, you know, labelling. So his nickname's Foulweather Jack. I'm going to refer to him as John because that's what he calls himself in this correspondence. But he basically, while his brother takes up the title, he joins the Navy and has this amazing Navy career which starts off with a shipwreck in um, just off the coast of Chile and this amazing five-year survival story as he's trying to make his way back to England from Chile, basically. So he, his sort of career begins with this tempestuous storm and shipwreck. And then as he, he does eventually get home, as he goes through his career, he's, he picks up this reputation, basically, for wherever he goes he's followed by storms and um, that it's thwarting him at every turn. I don't think that's quite true, but certainly by the time of the American Revolutionary War, John is sort of sent into that as an admiral charged with sorting it all out <laughs> on the seas, basically. Um, and in in this mission, certainly within weeks of leaving England, his squadron is totally scattered. Then when he makes it up to America again every single time he sort of spies the enemy mother nature comes in and shoves him off somewhere else or sinks his ships or whatever um so this nickname Foulweather Jack certainly does date from the 1778-79 time when he was involved in the American Revolution and um I found it in the um one of the London papers basically saying that the his sailors call him Foulweather Jack because he's so thwarted by storms wherever he goes Okay, so this is during the period of was it the American Revolution and the Seven Seven Years' War? Um he's he's definitely gets involved in uh both of those. The Seven Years' War was um slightly earlier, um, but he, he gets stuck into that one as well. Okay, okay. <laughs> and what was it like to research one of the Byron women? So you mentioned um Isabella, who was the wicked Lord Byron or William V Baron's sister, um, does she have the sort of similar characteristics or was she more of a surprising, uh, different sort of character? Yeah, I, I really loved being able to tell the stories of the story of Isabella, also of the poet's grandmother, Sophia. Um, obviously, the women have totally dropped from the sort of myths um and also as a result from from sort of the historical record a bit Isabella herself I think was probably my favorite of the lot of them um the the sort of character traits that I found in her were very much um she she was in love with love basically <laughs> so she she's left a lot of letters behind to some of her friends uh, to her daughters and my favorite was to her 
second husband um, during the time of their sort of courtship and their marriage and then their eventual sort of marital breakdown and separation. So it was all quite sad. But the way that she writes is just so spirited and romantic and she was desperate to sort of go to Europe and travel like her brothers had and she was constantly whinging about not being able to do the things the men could because it was unseemly, basically, um, sort of to go up the mountains on horseback and all this sort of thing. She So she was a really fascinating and lively female character that I think you don't get all that often um, unless they've been sort of transmuted into some perfect feisty heroine, which she certainly wasn't. She She had her flaws as well. Yeah, she sounds almost like a character from fiction rather than an actual living, breathing woman within this period, especially within the context of two quite powerful male figures around her. Mm, definitely. I think she was the oldest and I think she was a bit probably spoilt in the same way that her brother William was um, and her mother was very young and sort of um, her father wasn't really around and you know from the age of about 15 so I think she was probably indulged a little bit in these ideas of not so much female duty but finding her own passions and um, being able to indulge her own creative talents and all of this but yeah I don't I don't want to paint her as a sort of this uh sort of ideal feisty (laughs) heroine because she absolutely wasn't she was sort of a dreadful woman at times as well um but I think for me that sort of more three-dimensional character made me like her all the more yeah, absolutely. And and it's interesting because we're looking at the, you know, you've got the rakish character of, of, of William, the fifth baron, and then the, the the adventurer in Foulweather Jack, and then you have the romantic in Isabella. It's interesting how all three of those components sort of tie into the personification of, of Byron as well, of, of the poet. Absolutely. So his father was, was was dubbed very kindly Mad Jack. Was he was he mad? <laughs> well, the story of that one is it comes about, I think it's in the 1820s is the first time that's put in print. So I'm very loath to sort of say Jack himself died in 1791. So he's well dead by the time um, this nickname starts doing the rounds. I think what's for certain is that he wasn't a very nice person. Um, I wouldn't say he was this. I've not seen any indication that he had any madness or mental illness or anything like this which sort of the nickname suggests but he was hugely selfish and entitled and um out for himself at all at all times really so while one thing I was thinking that I might be able to do at the beginning of this project was rehabilitate some of these characters a bit but there was no there was no way of doing that with Jack for sure (laughs) um there is, there's great sources showing that he was a very handsome man and evidently could be very charming, getting all these women into bed, um, including people far above his rank and, uh, you know, anything that he could have hoped for, really, he did manage it. So there's obviously there some parallels with the with his son, the poet, as well. Um, but, yeah, in terms of money and rinsing everyone he could um, and then just sort of leaving all of his responsibilities behind at the first moment to sort of run off to France he he did all of those very eagerly what what do you think it was about Georgian England or London that enabled these characters to become such kind of parodies of themselves um I suppose 
for us looking back, it's so much easier for us to pick up these things because of the sort of blossoming of print culture in the 18th century. And um, this is one of the reasons that I love the era so much is just that the, the material for it is so rich and gossiping as well. You know, the, the sort of re renown can be made in newspaper gossip columns. Um, and I think that in different ways, the people in, well, most of the people in the Byron family sort of were influenced or, or shaped by this. So for Jack, the poet's father, his early scandalous affair with um, a married Lady Carmarthen, he really exploded onto the public scene with that. And it, it was very much all about, you know, the intimacies of their bedroom activities being laid bare. Um, and that's just not something you find so much in earlier eras, I think. So maybe it's just more that we, we're more able to eavesdrop, really, from the material that's left. But also, you know, the era itself is quite still quite renowned for just being terribly bawdy and having that sort of sense of humour and all these sort of debauches being fair game and, and very visible wherever you went. So um, it's probably a combination, a combination of those. Yeah, it's, it's the age of satire, isn't it? Um, and I think yeah, we've talked yeah. in the past, actually, I think, about um, some of the cartoons that are still available that people can see of um, these sort of mock um, King George or the Prince Regent, all of these different characters who are just portrayed, or you know, the characters like um, Mad Jack being portrayed so rudely. <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing mm, that these definitely. could go to print. It was kind of, I suppose, would you say that something like the privatised today, the nearest you would get to something like that? or I would say so. I would say so. There was fairly free licence for these things at that time, even, as you say, on the, with the royals. And um, it was another a, a way also to elevate fairly lowly um, people up to this sort of status of celebrity as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's really fascinating. It's obviously something that begins to be suppressed during the, in the very end of the Georgian era. Um, so yeah, it's much it's much easier to to sort of investigate during this era. Um, and Mad Jack, so he, as you said, he managed to seduce many women. Um, who did he finally marry, and therefore became the mother of of the poet Byron? Um, so he he so he finally married. Who was who was that, and what was she like? So so his um, actually just to zip back a little bit. His he was married twice, and his first marriage was with this um, lady Carmarthen, who he basically started sleeping with, um, and then her husband obviously took offence to this and began divorce proceedings immediately. Um, and very shortly afterwards, Jack married her. And they had three children together, one of only one of whom did survive, and that was Augusta, who's famous for being the poet's half sister, basically. Um, and then after a bit of a gap, sort of gallivanting about Europe, trying to figure out how to pay his debts now that uh, he didn't have a rich wife to rely on, he comes back to England, um, comes to Bath, and there he finds a teenage Scottish heiress called Catherine Gordon. Uh, and they have what must have been a very whirlwind romance and they marry in May of maybe just weeks after he's arrived in Bath in um, 1785. 
So he's basically, I don't want to say tricked her, but he's definitely gone after her for a fortune. Um, She's very starry-eyed about it at first, but then almost immediately as, as they go back to her estate in Scotland, he just starts running through her money and it becomes very clear that that was what he was after in the first place. And the only child that they have together is uh, George. By the time he's born in 1788, they're, they're not on good terms, his parents, and they remain not on good terms um, until Jack basically leaves the country to escape his debts and uh, dies about a year afterwards. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So that then leaves his young wife and the poet Byron, Lord Byron. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's um, so the the son is three and a half at that point, I think. So he's he's not he's not even quite in the running to be the next lord yet. So so it's quite a thing to think that if Jack hadn't gone off and died, it would have been him who was the next Lord Byron. I think he would have been the worst lord that there had ever been but uh, unfortunately for him he he died in France long before his um, uncle the wicked lord did. So at what point then does the young Byron inherit this brilliantly described decrepit sort of familial home Newstead Abbey? So um, the person who is in line to inherit for almost until the end of the fifth lord's life is his grandson and that's William John Byron. He isn't on very good terms with his grandson. He's basically waiting until he turns 21 so that they can resettle and start selling things off so that um, debts can be made up. What the grandson does is heads off to war um, and gets himself killed in 1794. So it's in 1794 that basically um, the fifth lord's family line is extinguished and it heads to who will be the poet, um, William himself doesn't bother to even find out who's coming next after him because it doesn't benefit him in any way. So basically it's in 1798 that the young poet in, inherits at the age of 10 and he comes down from Scotland to this 
stately ruin in Nottinghamshire with his mum to have a look at what (laughs) on earth it is he's just inherited and to try and figure out how his life would be changed, really. So it's quite unexpected until until four years before he inherits, they, they didn't expect him to. So do you think, what, what, what do you think made the poet Byron so scandalous? And especially in his early life, how did his reputation, do you think it, it was in his action or do you think that his family name preceded it? I certainly think that he drew a lot of inspiration and a lot of his, well, he spent a lot of his formative years learning about his ancestors um, and sort of imbibing their stories and finding his place in the world through them I think. Um, there, there are some scholars who have sort of pointed to very specific genetic traits that he supposedly inherited from them so sort of a tendency towards mental instability or, or a violent temper. Um, I'm not so sure about that level myself um but the the poet himself certainly did and I think that that has to have affected his behavior and how he sort of went about this colorful life with the sort of baggage of these ancestors behind him so I think there has to to some extent it has to have um informed his adventures I think his seeking for adventure certainly he was a huge admirer of his granddad um, and his sort of shipwreck feats of daring and all of this business. Um, and he knew as well about his great uncle's jewel and one of his school friends' comments about how Byron had always accustomed to associating the Byron name with duelling and, and violence and all of this. So he probably saw it as a way to, a bit of an excuse for bad behaviour in himself by saying, oh, you know, it's in the blood, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. It premeditates his further his future actions in a, in a way. And do you think that he did that in in part to differentiate himself from his contemporaries, or do you think that it was more of a personal way of fostering this tortured poet persona? I think. I mean, for the most part, he kind of just did what he wanted. And that is a very human thing, isn't it? Throughout history, I think he just, uh, if he wanted to go off travelling and sleep with who he wanted to sleep with, he, he was quite happy to just stand up for himself and do that. So I'm not sure. I, I, he certainly enjoyed his reputation and he, and he fed into his own mythologies quite gleefully. Was he um, Was he particularly popular and known and had and achieved notoriety in his own time for his actions or was that more of a posthumous thing the poet himself yeah oh he was very much the sort of people often call him the rock star of his day and and he definitely loved that um obviously towards the end uh, he left england for good in 1816 when sort of um for various reasons, but scandals were whipping up around him and his wife had was sort of casting aspersions on his um, good character and he, you know, had been having a, an incestuous affair with his half-sister as well. And I think um, that probably there were whisperings about that. Um, also, he just wasn't able to indulge the sort of uh, social and sexual life that he wanted to in English society and, and wanted to leave... So, so towards the end of his life there, it was definitely towards the notoriety and scandal end um, rather than the sort of fame and glory. 
Mm-hmm. His sister Augusta, his half sister, um, were they? So you say they had this incestuous relationship. Were they familiar with each other prior to that, or was that something that emerged as they met later on? Yeah, they didn't grow up together, and um, I think they sort of met not very long after he'd first inherited. So when he'd come down to England, um, very briefly they met. Um, she was what was she? Maybe four years older than he was, I think. Um, and then they had a bit of a break and sort of corresponded with each other. And then um, a few years later, I think he was in his late teens, they they met again and sort of struck up this proper friendship and started fostering this proper relationship with each other, which obviously went in a, a very uh, strange direction um, eventually. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's it's, I think that was part of his not excuse is the wrong word, but you know, he he would sort of say, you know, we didn't know each other from children. We weren't brought up together, so it's different kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean in a in what in what was gonna what was about to become a very evangelical, um, very se- severe and stern period, something like that must have been quite shocking um to to people especially if, as if he was a celebrity type figure how was that sort of how was that sort of thing in byron's his not only that his affairs and his scandalous nature how was that put to print and how did people hear about it well with his with um the affair with augusta specifically that's actually something that's only really been um verified probably relatively recently and it, it's sort of been projected, I would say, a little bit onto sources of the time in that, well, I could be wrong, but I, I don't know of any specific, you know, newspaper articles of the time saying, oh, the, that rascal Lord Byron and, and his sister um, having a child together, which is essentially um, probably what did happen. So for that in particular, it's it's been sort of dredged up from from correspondence by later scholars. For the scandals in general, I think he was just a constant, ever-present uh, name um, in newspaper records and in people's diaries and people sort of sending him their fan mail, even though he'd supposedly done all these terrible things. So he he just really was very much a sort of celebrity of his time. So this book is really, um, it's a really fascinating, complex and thrilling family tree. Um, and that's goes hand in hand is in, with your experience because you're a genealogist as well as a writer is that and that's right how did you find researching this um in comparison to in because in comparison to sort of general day-to-day genealogy work that you do was it a, was there a lot more material did you find that you had to sift through a lot of narrative and hyperbole to actually get to the truth or did you find that actually stripped down it was really not too dissimilar it was easier for me than most, simply because you know there there, there is academic work on this. Um, not since the seventies, uh, really, um, but there was one. There's one amazing, a thousand year plus genealogical study of the entire family um, by a, a woman called Violet Walker back from the seventies. So having this as a sort of bible to even start off with. You know, only a couple of chapters really applied to to what I was doing that I wanted to flesh out and really focus on. But there was a a really good, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants sort of thing there. It's an amazing starting point. So when I'm doing my usual 
genealogy projects for clients that tends to be a load of farmers in Lincolnshire that I'm sort of tracing and trying to find them in the records um, and starting from nothing. So obviously that was an amazing starting point for me. Also, the on digging into the archives, and I did find a lot of um, source material that hasn't been published before um, in terms of um, personal correspondence and journals and sort of um, one really charming little teenage, oh, I think she's about 13, a 13-year-old girl's little diary who was a neighbour of the Byrons and she was constantly getting very excited about nipping round and being given a present by Lady Byron and seeing the boats on the lake and all of this sort of thing. And because this was upper class, um, it was just that sort of source was obviously so much more likely to survive and exist um, and, and really allowed me to paint a, a much livelier picture, I think, of um, the characters from their own words and also from those just sort of, you know, knocking about with them as well. And you do, you have a, a remarkable talent for painting very lively pictures because I I love all of your tweets and your Instagram posts. You just manage to find these little nuggets of just absolute gold and it just brings so much life to your characters and to the century that you work on thank you Um, (laughs) so if somebody wants to explore more of this in the flesh I know we're obviously not able to do much at the moment but something I really like to do with this podcast is, is to encourage people to get out and go and go and see historical sites go and um immerse themselves within the history that they now know about um where would you suggest that people could go to in relation to byron and his family history yes for for the to-do list when we're allowed out i would say um the number one if um if people haven't been before is definitely newstead abbey which is just outside of nottingham and that's the ancestral family seat it was in the family since um the time of henry the eighth until the poet ended up having to sell it um and it's just a sort of gorgeous monument now to to the family and to the um, owners who came after and how they've sort of renovated it. Um, it's a gorgeous museum, open to the public, and the grounds are free as well, I think, exact, as well. So definitely recommend that one. Um, sort of number one on the pilgrimage. Um, for characters from this book, Castle Howard as well was where Isabella, the poet's great-aunt, married to become mistress of Castle Howard and I've only managed to get there myself to get into the archive for a few days and then just sort of was able to run around in the gardens and quickly take pictures and then it was closed and I had to leave so I need to go back to that one myself but it's this amazing it's also got a really good playground oh, does it okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's good to know that's good to know as well but for adults for adults oh, too <laughs> no don't not just forget so yeah that's that's another sort of early 18th century um, stately home to go to. Um, obviously, I will always encourage people to get into archives if they are able and interested to sort of look at the, the original materials. Um, in the book, there's just a very long list of the sort of archives that I went to. British Library was great. National Archives was great. Um, and actually, one place that I found by accident and fell in love with was the Hill Garden and Pergola on Hampstead Heath, and I was I was looking for the London the last London villa owned by William the the fifth Lord Byron, and I was just thinking if I'll be hugely lucky if there's anything there, um, and there wasn't. I was tramping around on the heath, and then with a lot of cross referencing of map, uh, maps, it turned out that it had been 
demolished in the Edwardian era to make way for the hill garden. And it's just a very beautiful little peaceful, again, free to go to um, outdoor space. So that one's lovely as well. Oh, fabulous. Thank you so much, Emily. It was a real, real pleasure to have you on the podcast. And um, can you tell everybody the title of your book and where they can get it? Yeah, so it's The Fall of the House of Byron. It's nice and dramatic sounding. Um, one day, hopefully, it will be in physical bookshops, but it, you can find it on Waterstones or Amazon or um, hive.co.uk as well. It's on there, which would allow you to support a local bookshop. So any of those. Thank you so much for coming on to Hidden Histories and I no, thank you. hope that you'll return again soon. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.